Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome, everyone, to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm really excited for this week. This week, I have my friend, Tarina Maldonado, on the episode, and she is a public speaker and a life coach. She is the co-author of Fear to Freedom. It is a collection of essays of people who've left high-demand religion and about how they found happiness and the ability to thrive since leaving. She's a mom and a wife. She has three children. She loves hiking and reading and personal development. And I'm really, really excited for today's episode because she and I have been talking on Facebook and we've been talking about this topic of sharing our stories and how it helps us heal, how it helps us connect how it helps us be shame resilient. And we just thought that this would be a topic that would be perfect here on the podcast. Before we dive in much further, I really want to let people know that there is a trigger warning with this episode. We will be talking about not only religious trauma, but also sexual abuse and sexual trauma. So be aware of that as we go into this episode. And again, as always, please listen to your inner knowing, your inner authority, and always give yourself permission to do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. And so I can't wait. Welcome, welcome, Tarina Maldonado. I can't wait to talk to you today. Thank you, Terry. I'm so excited to be with you. Your podcast is so amazing, and and I'm really excited to to have this conversation with you and share some of our thoughts with your audience. Oh, I'm excited too. It's going to be so much fun. So, oh, we're just going to dive right on in and I can't wait to see what comes up in this conversation. So what made you decide like, you know what, I really want to talk about the power of sharing our stories. Well, I had this really amazing experience in 2018 where because of my job, my family was invited to the pre-release screening of the children's movie Show Dog. And I had no idea the impact accepting that invitation would have on the trajectory of my life. Um, In the movie, there is a scene where the main character, who is uh, an anthropomorphized dog, uh, to save the day and become the hero has to have his genitals examined. And despite voicing his discomfort with this, um, he was told that that was necessary to save the day. And he was even instructed to go to his Zen place while this happened to be able to, you know, endure the examination. And that made me a little bit uncomfortable and raised some flags for me that it was not an appropriate message to be sending to our kids and to having a children's movie. And after the movie, we asked our kids what they liked and what their favorite scenes were. And that 
seen was exactly the one that my daughter said was her favorite. And so I knew we needed to have a conversation. And so we talked about good touch and bad touch and reiterated the swimsuit rule and talked about, you know, having open conversations with mom and dad, if anything ever does happen and, and those kind of things. And those were not the first conversations we've had with our kids about that topic. Um, because as a survivor of child abuse, I know how important these conversation and open dialogue is with our children. And I feel that one of the greatest ways to empower our children to be abuse resistant is to give them knowledge and to give them words and to give them um, an, an experience of conversation with us about this. Um, and I was really thankful to be in the place where I was on my journey of healing from child abuse when this movie popped into my life, because at that point, um, because of the therapy that I had and healing work that I had already done, I was in a nice dirty place where I was able to publicly speak out about the message in the show dogs movie and what it was teaching my, my children. And because it was artfully layered under cute animals, jokes, and a hero's plot, it was easier for me to see as a survivor of child abuse and as an adult, but it was presented in a way that was very much above children's heads, the message that it was sending. And um, I didn't really think that I would need to say something because to me, it was very obvious what this scene was, was showing children. And so the morning that reviews were able to be released for the movie, I sat down on my computer confident that I would find one that spoke to sexual grooming of children. And I'm reading review after review after review, and there's no mention of this scene or sexual grooming for children. And it became apparent to me that one of two things was happening. Either nobody saw it, or nobody was speaking out and letting parents know that it was here. And the realization of this settled heavy on my heart. And I knew that I had to say something, despite the fact that my platform was very small, my audience was very small. I just knew that I had to, to share what I saw so that parents could have that information and then make an educated decision whether they felt comfortable taking their children to see this movie. And so, despite the fact this raised some fears for me as to what the consequences could be professionally or what the consequences could be in people's response to me sharing what I see this and the fact that the lens I see this through is the survivorship of child abuse. And could this perhaps, you know, put strain on family relationships if I discuss this? All these things really created a fear around sharing this, but I knew deep down that my fear was fueled by insecurities and really I had to share what I was seeing. And so I took a deep breath, got pumped up by my husband, and I sat down and wrote a review article that I shared the content and context of the movie. I shared my personal experience of surviving child abuse 
And I told my few readers that I had a valuable conversation with my children after watching the movie. And it was my desire for them to do the same. And uh, it was really amazing the response that happened. Uh, much to my surprise, the article very quickly went viral. And I'm not talking viral in the way that my 11-year-old preteen son would, like, oh, it totally went viral. I'm talking the legitimate definition of viral, where my article, I mean, my website had over 5 million hits within a few days. And the article was shared really around the world in several countries. And as to be expected with any viral post, there were critics, there were naysayers, um, and it was overwhelming to say the least. Uh, at one point, I was facing the threat of a potential lawsuit that would have cost me and my family everything. And the owner of the company, the small company that I worked for, communicated with me throughout this whirlwind, and her stake was even greater than mine. If she lost everything, that included jobs for roughly 100 people, several of whom I called friends. And while I had people cheering me on, applauding my words and calling me heroic, there was also the weight that weighed down heavily with the thought of what could be destroyed with my words, words that were born from my truth, my experience, my story, and most of all, born from a place of love. And in spite of the naysayers and legal threats, the emotional turmoil, I never once doubted whether I was in the right following my intuition and sharing my stories and my observations with others. As many people began to fight for a change in the movie or for it to be removed from theaters, I remained steady in my message and my intent to inform parents of the content so that they could make an educated decision of whether or not to take their children. It was amazing and humbling, inspiring for so many people to care about the things that I shared. And unlike in other experiences, I was heard. People listened. Hollywood listened. And for the first time ever, a movie was pulled from theaters to be edited for content. It was historic. That's incredible. I mean, like, can we just take a moment and just that is incredible that you, I mean, like there's so many things here that you started with this tiny little audience. You shared your truth, even though it felt risky and scary and that it made such an impact. The fact that it made such an impact means it resonates with a lot of people. There are a lot of people that needed to hear a message about sexual grooming and you were the brave one to share it because of your lens, because of your experience. So, and that it made a positive change. You started with a tiny little audience and it ended up making a big change. Like, I just wanted to pause there and just be like, that's incredible. It really is. It, it really was a historic event that happened and far beyond what my intent was or what my imagination could have delivered to me. So through that experience, at least one country decided to not even allow the movie to be released in their country. The movie was pulled from theaters. It was edited. Um, and the timing of the release of Show Dogs, 
my viral article, this historic change happened alongside the rise in awareness in the Me Too hashtag and mission. And I had people send me articles and information, stories, relaying that their mission and mine complemented each other and that perhaps more conversations with our children can help prevent one more woman from having a Me Too story of her own. Or let's just say one more person because sexual assault, child abuse is far from exclusive to females. Um, And as I became more educated, as I began to research, to listen and learn, I became aware of what consent is. And this is something, especially coming from a very conservative religious home, I had never been taught. I had been taught abstinence. I had never been taught anything about consent. You are not alone. I wasn't either. And none of my clients were, and pretty much everyone I talked to on social media that is in religious trauma or in religious transition, so often we're not taught what consent is, not just sexually, but consent for anything. Consent to, you know, serve in certain ways in the church, consent to, you know, do certain things in our families. We're just expected not to have boundaries and just to show up and just to take whatever we're given and not say anything about it, just to have a smile on our face and Come what may and be happy about it. Like, I think there's actually a general conference talk that says something like that. Like, come what may and love it. That's what it's called. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Consent is not exclusive to a sexual content. And it definitely permeates, you know, the lack of knowledge on that definitely permeates more areas than just our sexuality. Um, And as I was learning about this in the context of sexuality, I was unable to push down a familiar and terrifying question. And it had remained in a box that I just set aside. But as it arose this time, I chose to not ignore the question, was it rape? And as I allowed myself to really sit with that question instead of pushing it away, with the newfound education and knowledge I had on what context is, I allowed myself to acknowledge, yes, I did not want to have sex. And it happened anyway. And that, by definition, is rape. And as this awareness settled in, I, I began the steps to healing. I began therapy. I began down that road. And unfortunately, 20% of the women that are listening know exactly what that weight and what that journey looked like. And for me, like so many others, it was filled with shame. The first thing that I felt the deepest shame about was a question I had kept asking myself over and over again was, how did I not know? How could it have taken me 16 years to realize what was wrong with me? And I searched the internet for a story similar to mine, longing to know that I was not alone in this experience. And I found many stories that inspired and helped heal my heart, but none that were similar to mine in the way that I was longing for. 
And I had recently discovered the brilliant Renee Brown and her powerful works. And I was able to identify that what I was longing for was connection. And she taught me that shame needs secrecy to survive. And up to that point, the only place that I had shared this story was sitting in a bishop's office, repenting of the experience that I had had. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and you bring up Brene Brown, and she says that shame needs three things to thrive. It needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. And so we need to share, but we need to share with someone who is safe to share with. And we would hope that that would be a bishop or an ecclesiastical leader, but so often they add more shame onto our experience. So often there is judgment about the experience that we're sharing, which can actually add to the trauma instead of take it away. It multiplies the shame instead of diminishing it. And so do you want to tell us more about that experience and what that was like for you, if you feel safe? Yeah, I feel safe. And I feel like it can absolutely be helpful to discuss this. And I will say that the bishop that I spoke to was good. Like He was not super shaming. And to some degree, it did help me to kind of heal from that experience and move forward. But it also caused more damage in that it solidified that this experience was my fault, that it was my responsibility, that I held ownership for what had happened, when in reality, that choice was not mine. That choice was taken away. I didn't make that choice that was taken from me. And I think that is ultimately what I needed to heal was to know that was not, that was not my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, and this concept and this idea that this had been my fault and that I had sinned and that I was wrong in this happening really shaped a lot of the way that I saw myself from that point forward. I, I didn't trust myself, even though Never prior to that or even after that had I, in my attempt to be virtuous and chaste, had any slip up. I felt like I was like I had this story written on my heart that I would screw up and that I must be sexually permissive and mm-hmm. all of these things that mm-hmm. just really made me see myself less than because this had happened even though this experience was not even my fault. Yeah. Well, and I feel like even when we have kind ecclesiastical leaders that are gentle with us, without the words, this wasn't your fault, you have nothing to repent of, you are just as clean as you were before, you are just as worthy as you were before, there is no value taken away from you, you are worthy of love, belonging, success, joy, happiness, all of those things, there is no repentance for you to do because you committed no sin. You committed no wrong here. Without those words, we can believe, especially when we are growing up in a purity culture where we're talking about the ideal as being virginal when we get married, as being untouched. And even if you grew up in words like I did where there are visual messages that 
if your virginity is taken from you, whether it's consensual or not, that it's irreplaceable, then you do feel damaged. And it makes sense that we have these messages that somehow we're less than or less worthy or less able to trust ourselves because we do feel like a screw up. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me. Yes. And it definitely added a little layer of shame mm-hmm. to my identity of who I was. And I found as I was able to embrace the concept of Brene Brown, of vulnerability and sharing, I knew I needed to share this with somebody, even though without having that knowledge, I probably would have decided to wait until I felt more whole, wait until I felt more healed, and and then I could share this with somebody. But I knew even, even in these low moments, even through the process of healing that I needed to share with somebody. And so I reached out to a family member and I shared what had happened and I was, I was received with love. I was received with compassion. I was received with empathy and those things really helped me to heal. It helped Mm -hmm. me to feel more whole and it helped to release a little of that shame as this family member accepted me wholly as who I was and helped me to remember that this was a bad situation and I was not a bad person. And I think that's really what we need whenever we're sharing any story that's wrapped in shame, anything that makes us feel like we want to shrink and we feel less worthy or less good or less acceptable. Um, we're looking for those people, Brene Brown says, the people who have earned their right to hear our stories. And I think that is so important because I do see people sometimes that share unhealed things or things that are very vulnerable or open on social media and they get attacked by others who are triggered by what they share, who are not in a place where they've done their own work to be able to hold people in empathy or be able to hold people with kindness or compassion because they're in their own trauma. And I think it's so important to be able to identify, Brene calls it, um, who has the full marble jar. Like she talks about this idea that people put trust marbles into a jar with you by their actions and their words and being there for you over time. And whenever they break trust, they take marbles out. And we're looking for people that have full marble jars with us to share these experiences with. She calls them the move the move a body friends, the people that if you were to call them and be like, so I accidentally killed someone, they'd be like, all right, where are we moving this body? What are we doing? And she says that we only have a couple of people like this. We only have one, two, three people like this in our life, that if we have three, we're incredibly blessed that most of us to have one is is really all we need. Somebody that we can trust that wants the very best for us, that loves us no matter what, and that can handle whatever shame story we come to them with, not only with empathy and compassion and kindness, but also honesty, that we can trust that what they say to us isn't just to placate us or to um, massage our ego, but is the truth that they're going to communicate with us very, very honestly and and from integrity. Um, and that sometimes even when it does hurt to hear what they have to say, that 
it's because we know that they love us so deeply. And that can land a little bit softer, even when it's hard to hear, when you know that it comes from a place of love and honesty. Absolutely. So it's it's always the love and honesty first, right? And you don't want someone that's like, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those people that are like, no matter what, you are lovable, acceptable, whatever. And if there's that little guilt piece there of, you know, I screamed at someone or I dehumanized someone in the middle of my own trauma, they can be like, and that piece might be something you might want to look at, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We are, we all have those people and it's very important to know who they are. Yeah. I was really grateful that I was received in such a way and able to kind of propel my healing through sharing this this really shame riddled story and how how that acceptance and even just naming what had happened to me to somebody else helped to release some of that shame just speaking the experience helped to release some of that shame because it broke that silence and that secrecy mm-hmm. and and this experience of sharing with this family member really had a surprising result for me because I was unaware and they shared with me at a later time that they were a survivor of childhood sexual abuse for years that I was unaware of. And this was really hard for me to receive as somebody who loves them so deeply to hear about the pain and the trauma that they had had to endure. And I was also very thankful for the opportunity to have that role switched and to be able to then receive them with love. And as I heard so much fear and shame as they shared their experience, partly because the perpetrator of the abuse was another family member. And so there was this whole layer of fear and shame around sharing because this disrupts a whole family dynamic at this mm-hmm. point. And so I was very thankful that I trusted this person to share my story with because it gave them permission to share their story with me. And then after they were able to share their story with me, and I was the first family member they had shared that with, it gave them permission to then share with other family members mm-hmm. and to start that path of healing from this experience. And I kind of was able to see how these experiences that we mistakenly believe keeping secret protects us. Really the opposite is what happens when we keep our traumas and our pain and it, it causes more shame and it causes it to grow and the damage to become even worse for both ourselves and our loved ones. And nobody is able to fully heal and find a place of thriving when what needs to be healed is hidden and denied. It's when we take the experience and share it that we can truly begin to heal. And so it was really beautiful to see that the key to healing is the experience itself. The experience that we can think we need to just keep hidden away because it's so hard. It's so sad. It's so dark. Like the pain is so deep. The pain is so heavy. Mm -hmm. I can't share that with others. 
but it's those very experiences that as we share them with others become healing for us. And I just see that there are so many children living in homes that are clouded by the pain of abuse. And there are so, there's, there's too many people suffering with the pain of addiction. There are too many people in our jail systems. There's too many women healing from assault. And many of these, these problems are born from the struggles of shame and unresolved trauma. Shame that perpetuates cycles of abuse. Shame that creates an appetite for toxic numbing. Shame that fuels fiery, violent outbursts. Mm-hmm. And shame that whispers lies of not being worthy because somebody took away your choice. Mm-hmm. And I'm here with you sharing experiences of some pretty big life traumas. And thankfully, not everybody that's listening today carries the weight of, of those same traumas. But that doesn't mean that they don't have life experiences that have left the aftertaste of shame in their lives. We all have messages and experiences that have left shame in our hearts. And vulnerability is the first step to healing those areas in our hearts. Absolutely. Every time that we share our stories, we release a piece of the shame that it holds. And every time that we share our stories, we give others permission to share theirs. And every time we share our story, we provide a sense of connection and validation to others. And we, we, as we share our stories, heal our hearts and our lives. And as we begin to heal our lives, we can see that our stories and experiences are not what keep us broken, addicted, angry, living as a victim. Our silence is the chain that keeps us locked away from a life of thriving and joy. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you said that so well. And I think one of the things that that came up for me is you were talking about how everyone has experiences that produce shame. And I've heard my husband talk about them as little T traumas and big T traumas. Yeah. And so all of us have little T traumas. All of us have some wound from childhood, some wound from earlier in our adulthood that started to shape how safe we felt in the world or in our bodies. And that's really what trauma is. Trauma is about safety. It's do I feel safe in this space? Do I feel safe in my body? Do I feel safe in the world? Are there certain situations I don't feel safe in? And often we don't feel safe because we've experienced a trauma of some sort, whether it's a little T trauma or a big T trauma. And that can happen whether we're having an argument and arguments don't feel safe or whether we're, you know, jogging and somebody, you know, a guy starts jogging behind us or whether we walk into a church building and we hear a familiar hymn cue up on the organ or the piano when we have those visceral reactions that I just talked about in an episode a couple of episodes ago with triggers, when we have those visceral reactions of I don't feel safe, it's because we've experienced either a little T or a big T trauma. And there's usually a shame story attached to it. There's usually some sort of unworthiness or um, some sort of story about worrying what people will think about us if we speak it out loud. 
And I love how you said that really the key is to wrap words around our experience. As long as they remain nebulous and unspoken, they grow, they get bigger. It's like the boogeyman whenever we're growing up. You know, you would see shadows in your room. And until you turn on the light and investigate them, that fear can grow and grow and grow. That shame can grow and grow by wrapping words around our experiences and sharing them with people that have earned the right to hear them. It's like turning on the lights. We can see things for what they really are. We take back the power because I think that's really what makes trauma so difficult is it feels like our power was taken from us. And when we wrap words around things and we share our stories, we take back our power and we decide what the story means in our life. We decide what the impact is. We decide what lessons we take from it, what empathy we take from it, what ability to connect with others we take from it, and what we decide to do with the rest of our lives because of that. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about how watching the movie with your particular lens allowed you to make world change. Well, all of us, our big T and our little T traumas, they change our lens, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it gives us each a very unique perspective that allows us to change the world and keep these kinds of traumas from happening to others in the future, to help expand people's awareness, to help people empathize better, to help ourselves empathize better, and to make the world a better place, not only for ourselves, but everyone around us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And although my viral article created this global change for me and my life that was not nearly as powerful and as important as the change that happened within my own heart, within my own family. And as we begin to heal our heart and share our stories through vulnerability and courage, we begin to heal our community. And as, as we begin to heal our communities, we can change the world. Can we imagine a world where we're able to speak the experiences that hold shame and through that move to a place of thriving? And so we're able to spend our resources on creativity and experimentation and development versus healing and, and rebuilding and, and damage control. If we could use that in more productive ways, like what could we do as families, as communities, as societies? Like it's really powerful to think of what could happen if we were able to let go of these experiences that hold us back and falsely tell us that we're bad rather than the situation is bad. Imagine that weightlifting as we share our story and are received with empathy, compassion, and acceptance. What could we do if we no longer carried the weight of that shame? No, I love that. And I love what you said, which is when we're sharing our stories, we do end up healing our communities. And I think really what we're doing is, I think there's a mainstream narrative about what normal looks like or what a happy life should look like. And I think as we share our stories, we expand. We expand what's possible and we we make it more diverse and it makes it safer for everyone with all of our different lenses and all of our different experiences 
And I mean, so many of us come into this world with generational trauma. A lot of our traumas happen because our parents are traumatized and their parents were traumatized and their parents were traumatized. And they might not directly be passing down the trauma to us, but the way that they cope with life, you talked about, you know, toxic numbing behaviors. I mean, some of us have grandparents who were in wars that coped with drinking and with addictions of, you know, just all different kinds of addictions. And then our parents had to cope with that behavior with their own coping mechanisms. And then they brought those into parenting us and we developed coping mechanisms to deal with our parents' coping mechanisms. And so just being able to speak, I love how you speaking unlocked the ability for your family member to speak. And that starts to unlock all of this generational shame that I think we have like locked into our society. There's a lot of taboo, like we don't talk about these certain things because it's so triggering for so many of us. And I think as we begin to speak, we realize, oh, we have a lot more in common than we think we do. And I think we free everyone in our circle when we free ourselves to be vulnerable, to be courageous, and to speak our truth. We make it safer for everyone in our circle to then be courageous and share their truth. And it it just frees all of us. It becomes this like chain effect, just like the generational trauma, it becomes generational healing. Yes. And, and the stories that we, we share, it doesn't have to be exactly the same to give somebody else permission to share a shame story with you. It just helps them, it puts marbles in their trust jar with you. So then they can see that and know that you're a safe person. Even if they experience a small T trauma in their life, they're able to come to you and say, oh my gosh. I lost it on my kids this morning and I screamed and I, I am a horrible, horrible person. I'm a horrible, horrible mother. I cannot believe that I did that. They know that you're going to respond with, you're not a horrible person and you're not a horrible mother. You are a human being who reached her limits like we all do at times. And I also know that you're capable of going to your children and taking ownership of that and saying, I'm so sorry. And growing and becoming a better person. You're amazing and I love you and you're you're doing a great job. And when we have those people that we know we can have those interactions with, then as something may arise that might be bigger, we have that that safety and that connection already established. And it allows us to share a multitude of different things that might cloud us with shame if we didn't otherwise have the opportunity to speak this to other people. Oh, yeah. Well, and I like, I like how you said our vulnerability adds marbles to the jar because I call it getting naked first. Um, whenever I'm coaching in my head, I want to be the one that gets naked first. I don't want, I don't want to be fully clothed and, and make other people feel like they have to get emotionally or mentally naked first. I want them to know I'm a human. I'm flawed. I, have my own strengths and weaknesses. I have my own struggles. I have my own trauma I'm working through. And so I get vulnerable first because I want you to know like it's safe here. There's, you don't have to feel exposed. Like we're all just humans here doing our best in our skin. 
we're dealing with what we have and what we're working through and and we're beautiful and worthy of acceptance and love and belonging exactly as we are no matter what battle scars we have no matter what freckles we have no matter like no matter what size or shape or whatever we are we are all worthy of love belonging acceptance success happiness joy just all of it so that was the first thing is that when we get vulnerable it just makes it so much safer for other people to get vulnerable and the other thing that came up for me when you were talking is I think there's a mistaken idea that whenever we're empathic with people who are in a vulnerable moment, who maybe have done something that they feel a lot of shame about or have experienced something that they feel a lot of shame about, there's this idea that when I show you empathy, I'm saying that that behavior is okay. I'm saying that you don't have to change. Like We're just going to accept whatever behavior comes out, but that's not what we're doing. What we're saying is we're affirming people's worth and value, which then gives us the courage to go make amends and to change our behavior, to make the apology to the kids, to show up and try again, to make amends for our mistakes. I, During the Black Lives Matter marches in June last year, it really became apparent to me that shame resilience was one of those things we needed to work on collectively as a society so that we could hear people's pain so that we could make amends for the pain, so that we could actually see the places where we're contributing and where we need to do some work ourselves, because as long as we're feeling shame about it, we won't look at it. It's only when we can say, okay, I can have compassion for this. I was raised this way. I didn't know any better. And I can also do better than what I've been doing. Now that I know, I can, I can take those skills and I can do better. And I think that's what you're saying with the parenting thing is when we lose it or scream at our kids, knowing that we're worthy of love and belonging, even in those moments, gives us the courage to show up and apologize to kids, to make amends, to do better, to make a plan to pick ourselves up and try something different. Yes. And oftentimes finding that courage comes from the ability to speak the shame that you're feeling first. Because if you get so weighed down in how horrible you are, it becomes impossible to hold on to, I'm still a good person. And to be better, this is what I need to do. Because you get stuck in the, I'm a horrible person. Yeah. And you can't move on to the, to be better. I need to apologize to my children. I need to take ownership. And I need to, you know move forward knowing that I made a mistake and that's what happened. Not that I am bad, but that I made a bad choice. Yeah. As long as we feel unworthy, we will defend ourselves because it feels like such a life or death situation to feel like we're unworthy. We will defend ourselves and shield ourselves and block out information and justify what we did till the cows come home because it is too unsafe to admit that we made a mistake. It's only when we know that we're worthy of love and belonging, even in the middle of mistakes, even when we totally mess it up, that we can then move into making amends and trying something different and apologizing and admitting that we did something that was hurtful. Yes. Yeah. So this is, this is, making me think of another good point that a lot of times vulnerability 
has to start with ourselves. There was many times where the question arose, was it rape, popped into my mind. And I was not able to be vulnerable enough with even myself to sit with that question because there was so much shame with it. I had to have enough vulnerability within myself to even honestly look at that question. And, and so it takes a little vulnerability with ourselves when we're having these experiences to sit with those hard, hard moments, those hard questions, and to be beyond the stories that we tell ourselves of being a bad person and to take that deep breath and let that go and say, no, I am whole and I am worthy. I made a bad choice, but that is the human in me, the divine in me, my worth, that is unchangeable. That is constant and always there. I am always worthy. And when we can do that and be vulnerable and honest with ourselves, then we can also start becoming better, more whole as a person and as a community, as a society. Oh, yes. Well, and I think what makes it really difficult sometimes to be vulnerable with ourselves, like you were talking about, is that fear, that shame of, you know, what happens if I acknowledge this? What does that mean about me as a person? And the first step to healing anything is always acknowledging that there's something to be healed, that there is a problem. We can't we can't heal a problem that we won't see. We can't, you know, fix a problem that we won't acknowledge. And so, yeah, being able to get to that place where we can look honestly at what's going on. And sometimes what happens, we've talked about inner children before on this podcast. Sometimes our inner child is like, no, that is too scary. We'll be abandoned. And sometimes we need the adult self to just talk with the, the inner child self and be like, I understand when you were six or seven, this may have been really, really scary, but I'm an adult now. And this is the plan of how I'm going to keep you safe as we look honestly at this thing. If it gets to be too much, we can always withdraw for a bit. It's okay. If it gets to be too much, these are my trusted people with the full marble jars that I can call and they'll comfort me. If it gets to be too much, you know, these are the steps I can take to make sure I'm protected and that I am held and that there's someone there for me. So we might not have had that support when we were young, but now we have it. And these are the people we can rely on. And these are the ways you can rely on me to keep you safe. And so I find that that inner child healing and that holding of our inner child is so helpful when we have those things that you can tell like we need to look at, but there's so much resistance and there's so much fear about looking at them honestly, because we're so afraid of what's going to happen. And so often it's that that person inside of us, whatever age that was when we were wounded, that's like, mm -mm, we stored that away for a reason. We are not ready to look at that and to be able to say, okay, at that time you weren't ready to look at it, but we can do it now. We're old enough now. We're strong enough now. We can, we can look at it and I can keep you safe. Yes. And I have found in my own inner child work, something that has been immensely powerful to have grace for myself and that little Tarina that made those hard choices that maybe were not the most healthy, but were 
essential and were, you know, preserving me and to, to thank her for that and to let her know that she doesn't have to do that anymore. And so even though it may have created this limiting belief or these behaviors that I'm wanting to correct, that I'm wanting to heal, that I'm wanting to overcome, I still thank that inner child for doing that because at the time it protected me and it preserved me. And so to be able to thank yourself for this thing that you're looking at and you're not happy with can be very powerful in, in separating from where you are now and allowing yourself to acknowledge that you were doing the best that you could. And that is just fine because it got you to where you are right now, which is the perfect place to start on the healing journey, start on the path to your goals. Yes. Well, and it comes back down to when we shame our shame, it doesn't get better. We just add to the problem. So when we can, I love how you said she was just doing the best that she could and the coping mechanisms and the skills that she created were actually really complex for however old she was. And it did what it was supposed to. You're here. You're alive today. You got your needs met. You made it to adulthood. You made it to this place. And there's another thing my husband says really often is that the only reason we can look back and wish we did something different or something better is because we've grown. And that experience was part of our growth. And so we can't shame or hate that experience, like that the ways that we coped because it's what got us to here today, which you said is the perfect place. It's exactly where we're supposed to be in order to heal this thing. And the only reason we can do that is because that coping mechanism helped us get to where we are now. So I love that you think you're inner Tarina. That's adorable. I do that a lot with mine too. And I love that you relieve her of this sense of responsibility that she feels to protect adult you. And you can say, thank you for what you've done. And I'll parent now. You just get to be a kid. It's fine. Uh, And her child work is so beautiful and so healing. Oh, my goodness. We have covered so many good things. And I love that we've touched on shame a lot because so often what keeps us from sharing our stories is this idea that they're too shameful or that people won't like us or that we'll be rejected if we share those stories And you've touched on so many key pieces to sharing our stories, not only why it's so important, but also who to share with first, right? How to share in a safe place and how to start wrapping words around it so that you can heal. And if you don't have someone with a full marble jar in your life, hire a therapist. That is literally what they're there for. They're there to create safe places for you to share your stories, hire a coach, hire a therapist, hire someone who can hold safe space for you to share your vulnerable stories. The most important thing is that it's someone you feel safe with and someone that can hold space for you to show up and and be completely honest and vulnerable about your experiences so that you can begin to have that awareness and then begin to work through things. So, If you have a marble jar friend, great. And we have friends sometimes that are great marble jar friends for some experiences and not for others. Sometimes our shameful experiences can trigger their shame. It's literally just 
figuring out who would be the best person to share this with. And if you don't have someone in your life, hire a professional. That's what they're there for. It's what they're trained in. And they're there to just create safe places for you to explore all these dark things, all the shadow work, and you don't have to be alone. Someone literally can hold your hand in the swamp and hold up the flashlight while you find your footing and move your way towards healing so that then you get to live from this shame-resilient place that makes it safe for others in your life to heal as well. And it just creates this entire domino effect that I think is going to make our world better and better and better from here on out. I don't think there's any turning back. I think this is a big turning point um, with the Me Too movement, with the religious trauma being identified, with all of the things that we're starting to recognize just in the last couple of decades. And we're starting to heal all of this. Shame resilience isn't something we even talked about when I was in college, getting a degree in this, like this is all brand new and we get to use these wonderful tools that have been created to make life not just better for us, but for everyone around us, including our husbands, our kids, our best friends, our moms, our sisters, our dads. And I'm really excited about this world that we're creating. I am so excited too. I'm excited about where we're going as a people and as a society, how we're working together to heal ourselves and to help others along that path. I think it's such a beautiful and exciting thing that there's so much more research, so much more awareness, so many more people speaking out and sharing their stories so that we can collectively establish some new societal norms of what it means to be resilient. And I think we're just going to see that increase and keep increasing and keep increasing. And we're going to add even more knowledge on top of that. I mean, right now, you know me, I'm a huge, huge nerd. And I've been reading all about neuroplasticity and like just all kinds of things and how we're just at the tip of the iceberg, learning how our brain works and how we can rewire it. We're just at the tip of the iceberg, understanding our emotions and how they work and we're just at the tip of the iceberg with generational trauma and how to heal that. Like, I feel like we're like, it's just this really cool place where we get to be involved in something brand new that I think is going to revolutionize the entire world. I agree. It's beautiful that we get to be the ones practicing and implementing this new information and this new research and hopefully through our efforts be able to create a long-lasting societal global impact. Absolutely agree. I love it. Oh, Tarina, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Just a big thank you for allowing me to be here and just have such a juicy, beautiful conversation with you to share something that is so close to my heart and something that I feel so passionately about. Thank you for doing it because I know the listeners that are listening, I know so many of them, like you said, it doesn't have to be the exact same story, but hearing people's vulnerable stories gives us permission to be vulnerable. And I know that the people that are listening, this will have given them permission to be vulnerable with themselves, to be vulnerable with others, and then to become 
a pillar of courage and vulnerability for society that gives other people permission to be courageous and vulnerable as well. And I hope that these ripples that we just created also make big waves, just like your stories that you've shared have. And I continue to look forward to seeing you grow as you share your message and change the world from your corner of the United States as well. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All right. You guys, I am so glad that we get to share these kinds of episodes. Um, I hope that they've been helpful. I know that April has been a little bit of a heavy month. We've been talking about trauma. We've been talking about triggers. We've been talking about some of the shadow work. And the shadow work is so important for us to get into that light, joyful place. We're complex humans. We have to fill the whole range of emotions and look at all of the things in order to move forward, which is why next week we will be talking about toxic positivity. And so stay tuned for that next Sunday. And I can't wait to talk with you about that.